So there's these shadows, these parts of us that are a kind of um, the near enemy or the false equivalency of enlightenment. We try to make something into enlightenment that is not enlightenment. It's, it's false. It's like um, the narcissist will keep, you know, trying to expand themselves to be, you know, take in more and more and more and be more and more and more. And, and in a way, it's, it's, it's striving for being magnificent, you know, being the universe. But it's a completely false structure. Robert Condo Cornell was on track to become a college professor in theoretical physics and the philosophy of science when he dropped out of graduate school to become a Zen monk. He lived as a monastic for 10 years. After turning in his robes, he journeyed through a variety of vocations before going back to school to become a psychotherapist and spiritual director, exploring the boundary lands between Buddhism, Christianity, and psychology. He is the author of 50 Ways of Letting Go, and for many years he led interfaith meditation and practice groups at his church. You are listening to Sit, Breathe, Bow, a podcast for practitioners. Each week, leading Buddhist teachers share life experiences and insights to help guide your meditation practice as well as your life off of the cushion. I'm your host, Ian Whitemar. This podcast is sponsored by the Providence Zen Center, a residential Buddhist community in Cumberland, Rhode Island. The Providence Zen Center provides opportunities for short and long-term residency and holds retreats from one day to three months. For more information, please visit ProvidenceZen.org. Robert, I'm wondering if you can take us back to being in graduate school. You're studying theoretical physics, you're in philosophy of science, and you decide, yeah, being a college professor isn't where I'm at right now. I am going to leave graduate school and become a Zen monk. And I'm wondering what brought you to such a kind of radical change in in career and drive and focus, purpose? I was studying, actually, philosophy of science, and um, I was starting my second year in that program, and it became more and more meaningless to me. It felt like, um, you know, the kind of the scholastic thing of trying to figure out how many angels are in the head of a pin. Mm -hmm. It didn't answer my fundamental questions, and I had a in incident, I was practicing piano on the side because I love music, and I was at the conservatory that's at Indiana University where I was studying, and uh, I was practicing, and then I came out. It was a winter night. The full moon was out, and I looked up at it, and I started crying. Something hit me that uh, I knew was profound, and uh, it took me in a whole different direction. 
Now, you were already practicing meditation. No, I wasn't. Mm-mm. No. No, I was, uh, I was a nerd, you know, a full-on scholar, you know, wanting to prove myself and be smart and intellectual. But, you know, after in the second year, that intellectualism just palled. It just felt so meaningless. So how did you end up? Well, one, how did you end up choosing Zen? And, and <laughs> how did you end up as a monk? <laughs> <laughs> that could be a little long. Well, actually, I came out to L.A. to study Indian classical music at Ravi Shankar's school. And he was, uh, this was in 69. And then I met my first wife. And uh, we got married at the Zen Center of Los Angeles. And I became a student of my Mayazumi Roshi. Okay. It's a little bit of a twisted path, but hey. Yeah. <laughs> the Zen Center in Los Angeles at that time was was kind of like a spiritual kibbutz. Uh, Bernie Glassman was, uh, you know, the main student of Mayazumi Roshi. And we bought half of a city block to rehab, and I was the facilities director, so... In our department, we had painters and carpenters and plumbers, and I did pretty much whatever needed to be done besides besides electricity. I didn't mess with electricity. So I had a very practical job. And um, I'd say that the Zen practice was very difficult for me because, and we'll get into this later, I'm, a, I'm still something of a perfectionistic workaholic. And I carried that into Zen from my, you know, my um, academic studies. And I think at the end, I felt quite stuck. I felt like I had hit a wall um, that I could not pass. And I did not know what that was. And about that time, uh, Mayazumi Roshi went into rehab for alcoholism, and then all the sexual scandals at the Zen Center came out. And so for the last year, I was pretty upset and questioning what what practice, Buddhist practice, is all about. And I began to gradually get interested in psychology. Did you stay connected to the practice um, after you left? Or how, what, what was the next step, step on the journey? Well, I was married, and uh, I started a landscape business, actually, as a monk. It was called Zen Landscape at the time. And so I continued to practice, but not under a teacher. I, After the being burned once, I felt, uh, I don't trust teachers. <laughs> so I, you know, would sit on my own, and um, gradually I, well, actually, then I, I was married, I had kids, I had a landscape business, a contracting business, and so that kept me pretty busy. But I you know, I occasionally went on a retreat. I actually went on a couple of Catholic retreats, which I found very sweet and and actually um I think it helped my perfectionism to kind of just let it go and allow myself to be more present. It's quite a twisted path. 
<laughs> well, so you went from like very in your head to very in your body. Yeah. <laughs> and and then you um, went back to school, I think when you were 50. I did to study spiritual psychology. And why, what would, what brought about that change? Well, my son was off to college and I felt, what am I going to do now? Mm -hmm. I had a landscape business for 15 years or something at that point. And there was a sense of not enough, you know, that while I love landscaping, uh, there's the spiritual side that I've been kind of too busy to really pay attention to. So when my son left for school, for college, I felt this sense of opening of opportunity to return to my spiritual my spirituality. But given what happened at the Zen Center, I was really, really wanting to go in the direction of psychology because for me, psychology answered, answered a lot of the um, questions I had about how could a teacher who was so well-trained go so far off base and how could I be so far off base? You know, what could be, why am I hitting this wall? Why am I not able to um, ease into being? And so the, that program was really wonderful. Uh, it's a very loving, caring, supportive environment that really helped me to drop the um, perfectionism and workaholism and to be, open my heart. And one of the reasons I reached out to you to, to do this conversation is I, I read an article you'd written um, mm -hmm. in Presence, Presence Magazine. And uh, it was, I can't remember quite what it was. I think it was something false gods, letting go of the false gods. Dethroning but, the false gods. Dethroning the false gods, right. And you had this great line in there. Actually, I'm going to, let me pull up the magazine so I can read the line exactly. Often they came for spiritual direction with a conflation of the superego and its injunctions to be good with what they feel God is calling them to do. So it's important for us as soul tenders to help them discern what is the true inner voice of spirit as opposed to the demands and attacks of the superego in the form of one of the inner critics. And what I really kind of loved about this article is, you know, you were giving a name to this experience that so many practitioners have, which is they sit on the cushion and <laughs> like, oh my. My mind is crazy. It's so intense. And and actually, I think that's one of the reasons why so many people actually leave meditation. Really? I'm, I'm sure it is. Yeah. Is they, they don't realize that their mind is saying all these things all the time because they keep their life very busy. But once you start sitting, everything becomes very apparent. And painful at times. And confusing. Right. Well, you you really become present to the pain that you're living with and the confusion you're living with all the time. Yeah, absolutely. And I loved that you sort of talked about this superego 
And I'm just wondering as, you know, with the people that you work with, they've come to you not just as a psychotherapist, but as someone who's tending their spiritual journey. Yeah. And I have Buddhist Christians, people from self-realization fellowship, um, Muslims. So it's a very interesting <laughs> uh, collection of people that show up at, at my office. And I, I love the diversity. I, I talk, you know, I, I talk in Buddhism or in Christian. I can talk Christianity. I can talk Buddhism. I can talk uh, Islam. Uh, I just love the the richness of that. So, how do you guide them with working, you know, identifying the super ego and the the issue of it? But also sort of discerning the the true voice of their calling, whether they're Buddhist or Christian or or whatever. You know, they they've decided to be on this path. How do you then guide them, knowing what you've known you, you've learned in this in this path? Well, often we look at where the pain is. You know, to examine the pain, the suffering that's there, that's present and get a sense of where is that coming from and so often well there's a place several places it can come from one it can come from uh childhood trauma so there's that issue that there can be a lot of healing around but also there can be a lot of pain around the super ego the judgments the the expectations we live in a culture that is so hyper focused on achievement and fame and materialism that it's inevitable that we'll carry some of that over into our spiritual practice. You know, that's um, something Chogyam Trungpa talked about a lot um, many years ago, and when he talked about spiritual materialism. So I talk to the clients, and so often there's pretty clearly some kind of inner critic. And I've actually been collecting them. I have more than a dozen now, but in the article you read, there were eight. And so what I'll typically do when I sense there's a very strong inner critic, I'll help the client to become aware of and name the inner critic. So for different people, there are different inner critics. Let's say if you have a tendency to be a people pleaser, you know, codependency, um, then there's usually a guiltifier. There's a part of you that is constantly guilt-tripping you about, did I say the right thing? Did I hurt this person's feelings? Did I meet their needs? Am I doing what I should be in relationship to them? Then there are others of us that are all about performance. So there's a couple of really nasty inner critics around performance, but they they often don't look toxic, like the striver. You know, and it's so close to what we call, what do we call it in Buddhism, the way-seeking mind. You know, there is that that calling, that that longing for the true self, for the experience of 
beingness. But the striver is what you might call the near enemy of that. It feels very much like it, but it's not. It's, um, it's striving to prove itself. And there's so often a, um, a sense of deficiency, of not enoughness that is underneath that striver. I have one client who calls it the maximizer because he's always trying to maximize his experience and it can mm. be really crazy making. So that that kind of a, um, a part is covering over a wound, a deficiency. And so with them we have to, when we gradually get the client to disidentify with the striver, then we're dealing more with the tenderness of the wound of deficiency. Which I imagine can be a very rich area for spiritual exploration. Rich and painful. Yeah. (laughs) You know, one of the things that I, I think that psychology does for spiritual practice in general and in Buddhism in particular, uh, is it helps just to ferret out these inner critics that that distort and undermine practice. And I think especially for Buddhism, because it it's so practice-oriented. You know, you do this, you meditate, and you know, there are exercises and there's koans and stuff. It's really easy to set up um, a performance issue around that. I don't know anything about that. <laughs> I, I, I went in i went in for interview uh yesterday and i was like i don't know what i'm doing and the, the zen master was like yeah you just need to relax a little bit yeah relax a little bit it's so true so true and um and so what i i help people to do is relax a little bit by naming the inner critics Right. And so they can begin to, um, as Jack Kornfeld say, name the demon. Right. You know, that part of you that keeps visiting you over and over again, creating unnecessary suffering. Yeah. I really identified with the striver. I suspect that a lot of Buddhist practitioners identify with the striver. Yeah. And I think it's so often... Well, based on my own experience, but I, you know, my experience with clients too, it so often goes back to a father wound, you know, to a a lack of being mirrored, of being seen by our fathers. And so there's, there's that sense of deficiency of not good enough. Yeah. And my God, our, our culture just feeds this. And I feel like there's almost like a setup within Buddhism as well, which is you've got, you know, the the four noble truths, right? Life is suffering, but there's an end to suffering. All you have to do is follow the path and then you get there. And then then you've got the doer inside, which I, you know, the striver is like, okay, what do I do? Tell me what do I do so I can do it better, more. More, yeah. Exactly. And then you you do it and you don't necessarily feel the results and it all of a sudden it becomes wrong. Often you end up in a painful cycle of efforting and frustration 
and then self-judgment and for you know right how do you guide people into a healthy practice because i you know obviously practice still is very rich and rewarding so yes. how do you guide people into a healthy practice well i've got a young man right now who's studying buddhism and as he said he was practicing militant mindfulness mm. what a rich phrase huh that's so great you know, so he's hypervigilant and he's watching his thoughts and his feelings. And it's like, he's sort of like a, a cat that is fully aroused, waiting for the mouse to come out of the uh, mouse hole. Right. And I'm just helping him see how the striver is in there, the perfectionist, the, the one that's telling him it's not good enough. Mm -hmm. And gradually he's relaxing around that. So you have this book called 50 Ways of Letting Go. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you intended it to have this resonance, but for me, the first thing I thought of was the Paul Simon song, 50 Ways to Leave Your Lover. Oh, I don't know that one. <laughs> oh, are you kidding me? It's no, such a good song. I'm, oh. a, cla I'm a classical musician, so I'm, oh. I'm, that's, I'm... Here I was thinking you were trying to operate on two levels. No. <laughs> but so for me, like when I heard it, I thought it was quite clever because of, you know, 50 ways to leave your lover. Sometimes we fall in love with these critics. Oh, God, do we? And it's almost like heartbreak to kind of walk away from this thing that we've known. Yes, absolutely. Because there can often, when we give up the striving, then. For a lot of us, we can fall into such a sense of deficiency of, you know, then we're sitting in the wound of not enough, right? which is painful. There yeah. also may be grief that, um, I know this happened to me, that you know, I've, you know, I tried so hard for so many years, tried, tried, and then realized that isn't it. Right. And there can be grief for the the loss of the dream of, you know, achieving something wonderful to be good enough and valuable and realizing it was false. It was not a dream. It was more of a nightmare. Yeah. I think if I, if I look at my shadow. That's what we're talking about then. The book yeah. I wrote was the subtitle was shadow work for spiritual practitioners. Which is, I mean, the shadow is so instructive and so so insidious. It's insidious. Yeah, and but also instructive. Like when you yeah, really yeah. get into it, it's like, yeah. oh my gosh, okay, that's very cool. Well, that's why I think psychology brings such a wealth of information and compassion to right. our egoic consciousness. That Especially you realize that so much of this is set up by our childhood. Right. And so we're still trying to prove ourselves to our father or trying to uh, get away from our mother. In some way, so much of egoic consciousness seems to be formed in childhood. That, and so there's these shadows, these parts of us that are, are kind of um, the near enemy or the false equivalency of enlightenment. Hmm. We try to make something 
into enlightenment that is not enlightenment. It's it's false. It's like um, the narcissist will keep you know trying to expand themselves to be you know take in more and more and more and be more and more and more. And and in a way, it's 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 striving for being magnificent, you know, being the universe. But it's a completely false structure. Yeah, I think if I look at my shadow and I look at how much I work, there's this side of, or or even my own spiritual practice, when I think I can almost make it material in the sense of the level of consumption that I try to do. Um, you mean reading lots of books and... Lots of books, sitting a lot of retreats, yeah. you know, d- doing a podcast. Like, like if I, in the uncharitable view of it, right, is that there is this real striving that if I prove enough, it will be real. Yeah. Know, or if I show enough. And I can see, you know, so that one I really identify with. And, you know, others in your list, I could totally see how other people... <laughs> You know, they're not yeah. mine, but I can yeah. see them yeah. really coming into their practice. Yeah, they do. And and so it's really important that we don't beat ourselves up that this shows up in our practice. Right. This is the conditioning. And that's why I think psychology brings insight and compassion that this is practically biological. Right. As As children, we are programmed to please our parents. You know, you know, a human being can't survive without a parent until they're at least 15. And by that time, we've been pretty much programmed by our parents to be certain ways. And yeah, 15 is generous. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's probably is, 24. Well, but I, yeah. You know, but yeah. in, in the olden days, yeah, uh, right. a person, you know, you lived until 30, 35, a person right. might very well set off on their life at 15. Right. And so that's about the bare minimum to survive. Yeah. And egoic consciousness is all about survival. What do I have to do to fit into this family, to be accepted, to get attention, to get nurturance, to not be rejected or abandoned or even killed? I mean, let's face it. We are animals evolutionarily. We are set up to be programmed by our parents in order to not be rejected so we can survive. Yeah. So that really comes into the practice. You you have these forms that are that you live within. Yeah. That then determine how you experience the practice life. Exactly. And I suppose koans. I never did well on koans. They drove me crazy. I was too intellectual. <laughs> right. Uh, but I suspect that's what koans do. But psychology, for me, is so much more accessible and understandable. You know, so many young people today are psychologically very uh, knowledgeable. It's in the air. And so that language, that that framework is so useful to talk about the the blockages or the the stuck places in, in practice of how we get there. 
Now, there's probably no one answer for how you start guiding people to explore the demons or explore the superego. But are there patterns that you see in your guidance? Um, are there useful uh, tips for people? So, and I'm just curious because the people who listen to this podcast are all, you know, practitioners for mm -hmm. the most part, people mm -hmm. who are spending time on the cushion yeah, and wrestling with, uh, you know, trying to wrestling is a good, is a good term. <laughs> so they, they think they're wrestling or, you know, they are wrestling with a mind that is distracted, but they're, and they're wrestling, wrestling with their ego, with their ego. Yeah. Yeah. So I say, you know, follow the pain, follow the frustration, follow the boredom, uh, you know, all the kind of negative things, inquire into them. What's going on here? Why am I having this experience? And so often it, it's related to one of these inner critics, like the perfectionist, I think. So many of us that are spiritual practitioners come with a striver and a perfectionist. And those often, and those gang, those often gang up on us. <laughs> now, why do you think that those two are particular for the the person who's, you know, committed to practice life? So we come into spiritual practice with a sense that there's more than we have, and it's so easy for us to translate that into because of our culture, for one thing, into striving and perfectionism. It's like, okay, the way I get to more is to try harder, to perfect our practice. One of the things I like about Christianity um, that I used to not like in the Bible, the people are very imperfect. Yeah, they are. They are totally human and imperfect. And the perfectionist in me used to dislike that. But now I see that there's something really very wise in having people in Scripture or in writings that are imperfect. One of the things in Buddhism that's, I think, a little tricky is you read some of the the scriptures in the Buddha and the Bodhisattvas are perfect, yeah. without without blemish, without error. Yeah. What a hell of a goal line to set for yourself. Right. <laughs> and so yeah. it's very it's very tempting to get into, well, I need to be like them, so what do I do? And then we get into doing rather than being. I think you even see this with some of our sort of modern saints as well. I, some of the sort of hagiography I see around Thich Nhat Hanh and stuff yeah. like that. It's yeah. like the guy is perfect. And yeah, I, I, I don't know him. I don't know. I, actually, I don't know anything bad about him at all. But I, you know, he's a human being. I, so. I remember. I remember a, a, someone that I knew at the Zen Center wrote, wrote a little article where he was talking with uh, Father Berrigan. Oh, uh, yeah. This was after the World War, <clears throat> after this Vietnam War. Yeah. And he was very angry 
at Father Berrigan for what the Americans did. And Father Berrigan was so anti-war, but Thich Nhat Hanh lost it. But I, you know, it's a totally human thing. His, his country was devastated. He, he lived through that. Wait, this person was so angry at Father Berrigan? Thich Nhat Hanh was angry at him. Oh, really? Yeah. But that's such a human thing. It was so understandable. What we did in Vietnam is an abomination. And he and Thich Nhat Hanh lived through that. But that's so funny because I think of Father Berrigan as like so anti-war. Well, he was. And they were actually having a conversation, uh, I think, about the war. And, and Thich Nhat Hanh just lost it. But wow. it's understandable. It was so painful what he experienced for his his people going through that nightmare yeah and there's uh, mother teresa who i strongly suspect was a workaholic and you know there was um it came out that that in her prayer life it was very very dry she had yeah. had this calling this inspiration to begin this work at a retreat she'd actually i think been let go of or demoted um, as a teacher at a girls' school before that. She went on this retreat and then had this inspiration to start going out into the streets of Calcutta and doing the work that she did. But there's the, you know, there's, the sense I have is that she was a, rather a workaholic and her prayer life was, was very dry and dark. And it felt like God had withdrawn himself from her. And that yeah. uh, that was her whole life. Yeah. So that's it's so interesting because we hold uh, some of these people up as celebrities because they have this outward um, spiritual perfection, life. right? And may they may or may not be happy. I mean, I, I literally I, I've heard that about Mother Teresa as well. For those of us who are engaging in the practice, like there's a lot of things we could be doing other than practice. Yeah. Um, and yet, I don't want to say that the, I don't want to reduce the desire to practice to simply having a daddy issue. No, no, it's far more than that. And there, we have this sense, you know, that there's, there's a much bigger picture. Mm-hmm. We sense it. I, you know, people are touched by something in order to come into this kind of practice. They sense that there's something greater. You know, it's not just daddy issues. It's a, it's a calling. It's a calling. It's a, it, you know, in the Christian tradition, they they talk they talk about the hound of heaven, which won't leave you alone. It's kind of nipping at your heels. It's something, you know, it's like, you know, there's something greater. You just know it. And so, you know, the, the, I guess the trick for us is to engage in the practice, recognizing the, I loved the term that you used in them, forgetting it now, the sort of near. Near enemy. The near enemy. Right. The thing that appears to be. The real thing. 
the real thing but isn't. But isn't. So it's very deceptive. It's insidious. And it just makes sense that people are going to have these kind of issues coming into practice. And so how to, you know, how to deal with it is when you get stuck, if you don't, if you don't get stuck, then fine, don't worry. But if you feel stuck and frustrated or anxious or angry or demoralized or whatever, begin to inquire into what is this about? Mm-hmm. What's going on here? Mm-hmm. Because there's some kind of letting go that needs to happen. And sometimes it's so deep in us and so we're so identified with it, it's very difficult to, to ferret it out by ourselves. It's really helpful. I think to have a therapist besides a spiritual teacher for for a lot of us. Maybe not everyone needs it, but I think it's really useful. Thank you for listening to this episode of Sit, Breathe, Bow. I hope you found the conversation with Robert Condo Cornell encouraging and helpful for your practice. You can find out more about his work by picking up a copy of his book, 50 Ways of Letting Go, or by visiting his website at spirittherapist.com. A special thanks to our sponsor, the Providence Zen Center. If you would like to deepen your practice commitment, I encourage you to explore PZC's residential and retreat opportunities. You can find all of that information at providencezen.org. If you would like some guidance on how to meditate, there are some videos you can watch at providencezen.org slash videos. My name is Ian Whitemar. I hope you'll join me again next week.